Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is June 27th of 2013, and tonight our guest is Gabrielle Glazer, who is the author of the book, Her Best Kept Secret. This book will be out in about one week on Amazon. It's not published yet. It will well, be out everywhere. In a, in a week, it's not published yet, so we're very fortunate to have a chance to do an advanced interview. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge, a laylight support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Gabrielle Glazer, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Gabrielle? I am fine. Thank you. How are you? Well, thanks for being on the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your book. What got you interested in the topic of women and alcohol? Well, in 2000, in the summer of 2000, actually, no, winter of 2009, a friend of mine who's an editor uh, at a publishing house and I had lunch and she suggested that I look into the topic of women and alcohol. We discussed times in our lives when we had used alcohol, perhaps not as uh, uh, um, judici- judiciously as we as we normally did, and we we just kind of started talking about why that you know why that happened, why that was, and also the fact that it appeared that around us women were drinking more. It wasn't just it wasn't just us, it was that women around us were drinking more. It seemed like a, a, a remedy that everybody was using. And so I turned that, that into a book proposal, and it landed on her desk the same week as the toxicology report, the news of the toxicology report of a woman named Diane Schuler, um who had a blood alcohol content of at least twice, maybe three times the legal limit, um, and had killed... Uh, herself and seven others in a really horrible accident in upstate New York. So, um, so that kind of uh, got the ball rolling. So, what did you find out about women and alcohol? Did you look at the research that had been done, and what sort of research has been done on women and alcohol? Well, the interesting thing is that when I started researching, I found some recent numbers for, oh, women are drinking greater in, in, in greater numbers than they've ever been drinking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And more women are checking into rehab. Um, women are being arrested m- more at the scene of car accidents in which they'd been dangerously intoxicated. They were being hospitalized more for uh, 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 alcohol, not poisoning, but um dangerous levels of, of alcohol in their in, in their bloodstream. And what was interesting about that is that the research only went back about 25 years. And so the more I started digging about women's alcohol consumption, the more I realized, oh, my God, nobody even ever bothered to, to, to study w- women and, and their alcohol use until that time. And sure enough, I tracked down the researchers, some of the early, earliest researchers, and um, they told me that certainly in the 1970s, one woman in particular, a Harvard researcher at the time named Sharon Wills-Mack, um, had looked in the Harvard Library for research on women and alcohol, and in, 19, in the early 1970s found, found six 
studies that included only female rats, um, I mean women, but also some female rats, as opposed to tens of thousands of uh, studies conducted on men. Now, that's interesting that you mentioned that there weren't even studies on female rats because there was one point when I was doing some research for a paper at the New School, and I was trying to do some research about differences between males and females and how they process alcohol, particularly in relation to antidepressants. And I uh-huh. started, I started because I, I had a lot of women that had reported to me that when they took antidepressants, they started drinking more. And I was wondering uh-huh. if there was a connection, and I started looking for those rat studies. And that's the exact same thing, exact same thing I found. Male rats, male rats, male rats, male rats. Where's the female rats? Why didn't you study right. any female rats? Right. Well, do you know why? Because they, they, they didn't have the rats controlled for where they were in their um, estrus cycles, and so they just threw them out. Threw them out. They just decided to, oh, it's just easier and more, um, you know, makes more sense for us. It's more a controlled experiment if we only use men whose hormone levels are not, are not, are not varying. Well, hello. Um, what do you think's happening? What do you think happens with women in their menstrual cycles versus, you know, I mean, the same sort of shifts can occur with women. So it really was quite um, short-sighted. Um, I think that in, in, in medicine, that's what they call Adam's rib medication, which, you know, if it's if it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for men, then it's fine for women, too. Yeah, I hadn't heard that term before, but I know what you're talking about. It shows up over and over again. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, well, I know you wrote a lot in the book about uh, treatment for alcohol difficulties and uh differences between men and women in how they react to treatment. And tell us, tell me a little bit about that. Well, one thing that I found um, extremely... I had never had exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous in my life, and I, you know, I, I didn't consider myself as someone who had a terrific alcohol problem. I was using alcohol as a you know, de-stressor at at one point, um, a little bit more than I should have. But so when I started doing the research, I thought, well, okay, I just kind of assumed that, you know, really ignorantly that um, AA was what worked and Alcoholics Anonymous was what worked. The 12-step programs were were what worked, what I'd seen on and what's, it's what I'd seen in popular culture. It's what I'd, 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 I'd read about. I read Mary Carr's book. I read, you know, Carolyn Knapp's book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I thought, okay, well, this is what works. I guess there's probably not much new to say here. But, in fact, there was a whole world that I hadn't discovered. And there was a very, very, you know, enormous, you know, enormous uh, uh, stories, number of stories to mine and the number of practitioners who have embraced progressive treatments and, and, you know, new treatments that are actually based in medicine instead of religion um, really kind of took me by surprise because as somebody who's covered health for years, I thought I would have those, those studies would have the studies, for example, the combined study um, story, the Cochrane research, library research on the ineffectiveness of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought those would have crossed my my desk, but they hadn't. 
nobody had i mean there was very 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 little coverage of those in 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 the mainstream media and so that really surprised me and it took me about a year and a half longer to kind of really delve into to the world of of ironically they're called alternative you know treatment providers when in fact they're science based treatment providers and not alternative, I mean, alternative treatment, in, you know, in, in, as we consider it today, is using methods that are not necessarily rooted in Western medicine. And Alcoholics Anonymous, as I'm sure your you know, listeners know, is, you know, about as faith-based as it gets. There's not any science there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting... Um the way Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step programs are presented in the media and the impression that the general public has, I've had people over and over again make references to uh, who's the professional that's leading this meeting. Um, right. And, you know, you say, well, where do you get the idea that there's a professional that leads the meeting? Right. I mean, I saw some that... The TV show Breaking Bad, I watched all those episodes, uh, uh-huh. and I saw that they were doing this this meeting, and I thought, this must be the aftercare group, because there's this one professional, and then there's all these broken-down junkies. Uh, it can't be an A meeting, because they don't look anything like this. And then all of a sudden, it turns out, this is supposed to be the NA meeting. Well, wait a minute. Why is it one professional leader and all these broken-down junkies here? Because the, there's no professionals that lead it, and then everybody... Well, if you walk into an NA meeting or an AA meeting, there's there's a mixed cross-section of society. It's not one right. sophisticated professional leader in a suit and everybody else, you know, looking like they got dragged in by the cat off the street. Well, exactly, Ken, and that really surprised me, too. When I started attending for, for research purposes, I started going to a couple of meetings. At first, I went, you know, I went to a couple and then probably about a dozen in all of them. And I, I think initially I was really surprised to find the first meeting I went to was between Christmas and New Year's of 2010. And I expected to find, no, 2009. I expected to find a, some sort of a boss. I mean, literally, that's kind of like, okay, well, where's the, you know, where's the social worker here? Where's the, I really expected that. And then the more I, the more meetings I went to, the more I realized, ah, no, this is not how that works. This is, you know, lay people not that there's anything wrong with lay groups of course but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it 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 took me by surprise how much as a nation we had invested in the effectiveness of this of this program how much of it i had kind of uh um um i don't want to say swallowed what's the word i'm looking for um how much of it I had accepted and how much people around me accepted. And interestingly, when I started working on the book and telling people, you know, the effectiveness of AA is actually about 5%, and that I'm being generous, I, people would attack me at, at parties. I was attacked at a wedding where I said to a woman, a psychiatrist in San Francisco, the city that embraces harm reduction, and she took me aside and said, you better be careful. You'd better be careful. If you say anything negative about AA, you're going to kill people. <laughs> and that is the response that I have received over and over and over from very 
well-educated people who literally somehow, for whatever reason, they believe in the popular culture story. Well, the, the media has taught us that addictions are 100% fatal unless there's some intervention like the 12-step program. So when we hear these testimonials, if we believe it's 100% fatal, then we're going to say, oh, this is a great success rate. But mm -hmm. if we look at the actual research, we find out um, for alcohol addiction, um, it's like three-fourths of people overcome alcohol addiction. Of those that overcome alcohol addiction, three-fourths do it on their own, no exactly. treatment, no AA, no mm -hmm. nothing. The mm -hmm. normal outcome of addictions is people get better on their own. It's like catching Correct. a it's like catching a cold. Right. And then I feed you jelly donuts while you have your cold and you get over your cold. And I say, You see, I cured your cold with jelly donuts. Exactly. 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 But the difference is, of course, that Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of the twelve step programs tell you that this is a problem you're gonna have for the rest of your life. There is one remedy and that's meetings. And um, the only possible trajectory for, for your life without meetings is exactly as you say, is fatal. You're either going to end up in jail, in prison, or dead. I mean, in jail, um, in an institution, or dead. And that's just not true. And I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, I'm embarrassed to report that that's, I don't know if I would have believed that kind of hyperbole, but I really did think, I certainly would have told you, Oh, they have a success rate. It's got to be better than average. And that's just not true. Charlie Sheen was right. Well, before I ever walked into a group, I mean, I thought so too. Um, well, this is what this is what you do because that's all I'd ever heard is this is what, exactly. what you do. You know, to actually walk into the group and then suddenly start seeing these. See, I thought this was a group where people talked about alcohol problems and strategies to avoid drinking and I just found out, you know, these are actually forbidden topics at AA because if you had the power to stop drinking, well, that's against the first step. So you can't talk about things, you know, I have this great strategy not to drink because, you know, I thought up a way for me not to drink because I'll go distract myself by going to a movie instead. And they'll say, exactly. no, you can't. You have to admit you're powerless. You just violated step one and you're going to die. You're going to exactly. die. Exactly. Exactly, Ken. Power. That was, I mean, and, and and again, as somebody who was an outsider and who, who you know, again, didn't have any sort of protracted problem. Um, by the way, I really enjoy alcohol. You know, I'm mm -hmm. I, I'm probably going to be skewered for that, but I really enjoy it. I'm very, very lucky. I understand that I'm very lucky to um, be a, um, to be aware of my own shut off valve, and mm -hmm. occasionally I do overdrink. And I, you know, I always don't, you know, I don't necessarily feel great the next day. But, you know, never, nevertheless, hearing people say over and over and over again, oh, my last drunk was when 26 years ago I pulled a bottle of hot gin out from, you know, from underneath my seat on a hot August day and, you know, in New Jersey. And that, nothing ever tasted so refreshing and so delicious as that hot gin. And she, you know, and I went to the same meeting twice. I kept hearing her say this, and I thought, oh, my God. You know, I've been a depressed person in my life. I've sought therapy. And I thought to myself, how does this help anybody? 
this is the recitation of a traumatic memory. What in the world? I mean, it's one thing to talk about it, you, you know, to get over it, but Jesus, this is this is reciting this every week. The same thing. This is this woman's share, and mm-hmm. you know, if it helped her, great, great. If it helps you, great. But uh, you know, we both know that the overwhelming majority of people who end up there don't do so well. Yeah, I have no problem with my friends because, you know, I do work in needle exchange and a lot of the people that I work side by side with, they go to Narcotics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. That's how they quit. And that's fine because if that's what works for you, that's your path, go for it. I don't have an argument with you. Right. But uh, for people like me, you know, I started going to AA and I drank more than I ever had in my life and I nearly died of alcohol withdrawal. It was not successful for me at all. Exactly. And and here's um, something else that, you know, I've I've received in the last couple of days. I had I've had a couple of uh, um, pieces out there, and 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 it's you know starting to get the idea that there is an alternative for women because that's who I cover. Um, but of course, it's everybody. Um, the idea that there's an alternative out there has really threatened the twelve step crowd. And you know, I I was thinking to myself that. I know a woman who um, was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, and she also had struggled with alcohol. And it was, in fact, mandated into treatment by her employer and said that she wasn't going to go to this particular treatment center because it was very religion-based. It was a Hazelden treatment center. And um, she wasn't going to do that. That wasn't, you know, she she was entitled to something else. She happens to live in a Western state where um, it's she's entitled to be offered at least another option under the Ninth Circuit Ninth mm-hmm. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling. And but she wasn't, and so she's been in a protracted battle with her state over this issue. And meanwhile, when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her same insurer, large insurer in a Western state, said to her, oh, we." the same insurer said, you have one choice of treatment for your alcohol problem. That's it. One choice of treatment, and we're sending you there. And you have to go, or you're going to be, you know, in worse shape for noncompliance. When she was diagnosed with breast cancer, she was offered a, the whole panoply, a panoply of treatment options that they would even fly her to in another state where there was a superior cancer treatment center and where she could be treated in a clinical trial. The mm-hmm. same insurer. So this is how, and I, you know, I, I have to say I'm I'm outraged by this. As somebody who is a, is a journalist and, you know, I'm, I know that I'm also part of the media and I would say that the one of the biggest problems um, is not reporters necessarily themselves, but popular culture and how television shows have and movies have reinforced the mythology of this is what you do when you have a problem. To me, seems almost a bigger um, a bigger issue than reporters not covering uh, new treatments for 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 
alcohol and and other you know drug problems well it's it is bizarre you don't uh you don't go to your doctor and have your doctor say there's only one way to treat your cancer. You have to go to the Church of Christian Science and ask God to cure it because that's the only thing that cures cancer. These man-made things like chemotherapy and radiation will just kill you. You know, your, your MD doesn't say that. The television exactly. sh- television shows don't say that either. But right. why, in the case of alcohol, drinking alcohol, if that's supposed to be a disease, which I don't believe at all. Me if that's either, su- yeah. If that's supposed to be a disease, why would it be cured by asking God to cure it instead of looking for some science-based uh, you know, intervention instead? And why are insurers, uh, this is a topic for you know, more discussion, obviously, and more research because I don't know the answer to this question, but why are insurers uh, so invested in this as a treatment when we know the research shows that it's, it's, it's you know, 28 days in a different state is, um, frankly, not that effective. We know that by now. Well, one thing that I do know about the insurers um, is the insurers used to, um, in the 80s, 1980s, early 90s, they would pay for just indefinite amounts of addiction treatment. 12-step addiction treatment. You know, you'd talk to guys at that time and you'd say, you'd have guys, I've, I've been through treatment 35 times. Same damn treatment. Still failing. You know, there's, right. a, there's a saying they have that comes out of the 12 steps says the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. But that's what the treatment industry itself is doing. It's doing the same treatment over and over and expecting different results. The insurers finally said at some point in the mid or late 90s, um, we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, you, got, you can have 10 days of treatment in a year, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't fix you, you're out of luck because you know, paying for the same thing over and over again and not having it work is just draining the money out of our pockets, and it's not Insanity. helping you. Right, and actually, uh, uh, one of the docs I, I spoke to, a guy named um, Mark Willenbring, who mm-hmm, used mm-hmm. to be, I'm sure you you know know him, probably even had him on your show, um, used to be the head of treatment research at the NIAAA. Mm-hmm. And he is all about science. He's all about embracing and trying new things and working with people where they are and is not a finger-wigger. And he said that rehab is like sending somebody on a repeat trip trip to rehab. Is And, and in many cases, as you know, m- many people go three, four, five. I have a source in my book, a you know, wonderful woman named Amy Lee Coy, who is very mm-hmm. open about her experiences, was in rehab eight times. And Willenbring said, you know, holy cow, this is like giving someone who has MRSA, you know, the very dangerous resistant multi-strain resistant or you know multiple resistant to multiple multiple uh, different antibiotics, most antibiotics. This is like giving someone MRSA who has MRSA more and more and more penicillin, even though we know MRSA bacteria itself is resistant mm-hmm. to penicillin. And I thought that was a really a very very apt analogy. I've even compared it. You know, some people have an allergy to penicillin, and it's like, why exactly. would you, 
Why would you give them penicillin again if they already had an allergy? Exactly. That's exactly. That's even better. It's it's as if they have MRSA and they have an allergy to the to penicillin. So yeah. Um, so I just think it's really important that we're having this conversation, and 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 you know you have been at this much longer than I have, and you know little by little I think you know we're starting to 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 make a tiny a tiny ripple, maybe a bigger maybe a bigger than tiny ripple. It is bigger than tiny. Um, I'm in contact with lots of people online who are treatment professionals who work in the industry. They're psychotherapists. And, you know, it seems like 10 to 20% are now saying uh, there's not only one way to treat this. There are different approaches for different people, and we have to match things. And, you know, if you had gone 10 years ago, you couldn't find 1% of people saying that. Well, you know, this is – I have another um, story to, to kind of reveal. I have a problem with my sinuses. I have um, chronic sinus problems. And I was first diagnosed, I had a really bad infection in the mid, early, early 1990s. And this, this, the, this was before the internet, this is before, you know, this is when you went to the, the best doctor you could find who your insurance took, which we still do, but you didn't, you know, there was no, you know, checking the doctor's references or anything else. And so I, I went to this guy and he said, oh, you have this problem, you have a deviated septum, and you're, you're, you know, you, you have this problem, we need to trim this, we need to fix this, we need to scrape this away. So it was basically a major overhaul. Of, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was a major overhaul of my sinuses, which are extremely, extremely, as anybody who's ever had a sinus infection knows, um, it's a very delicate tissue, and it's very painful. So I got a post-operative infection in this, you know, genius doctor's operating room. And he refused to treat it, said it was impossible that I had been, that I'd gotten sick in his OR, and refused to give me antibiotics, and I became deathly ill. I had, I don't think I had MRSA because I didn't get, you know, the antibiotic that that um, kills that, but I had something similar, and I almost died. And as a result of that, I, I had to have four more operations. And it's nobody's fault. It's well, the first doctor's fault, but it's nobody's fault. But I kept having to go back. And the only solution at the time was, well, we're going to have to go back in and do more surgery. And we're going to have to go in and do more surgery. And you're going to have to be on IV antibiotics for several more months. And it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. I was so sick. And... That was the treatment available at the time. That was the best we could do. Today, nobody would do that unless they've been living under a rock for the last 15 years. We know today that sinus disease can be caused by, you know, fungal infections. We know it can be caused by, you know, some sort of mystery inflammation that can only be treated with steroids. We know that which is the best we can do today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And my doctor today is my partner. He and I collaborate on when I get sick, what we need to do. The rest of the time, I manage it. That's it. You know, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have to, I don't, I certainly don't, you know, faith doesn't play into it. Science does. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm not anti-religious. I'm actually a, 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 you know, believing person. 
So, um, yeah, but I, I, I'd much rather have my doctor be knowledgeable about sinus disease than and how to how to treat it than have him refer me to synagogue. Well, it's not mutually exclusive, you know. If you get sick, you can go to the doctor and you can have your congregation pray for you at church. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I want to ask you some things because uh, your book is about women and alcohol, and particularly it's about women and the treatment system and the 12 steps and particularly the 13th step. Mm-hmm. So um, it is really my considered opinion from my experience, which Taylor, I mean, fits in with yours too. That you know, I think uh, AA is not effective in general for men, but for women, it is. It can be utterly devastating and unbelievably harmful. And I want you to address some of the special issues that women have to deal with. Well, first of all, um, women. As we uh, said earlier, women drink. Women who who develop problems with their drinking have more risk factors than men do. They are tend to be medicating uh, depression and anxiety, and they tend to have um, been sexually abused. There's a overwhelming uh, evidence that shows that sexual abuse as a child or as a young woman is a definite risk factor for uh, developing alcohol problems, and. When a woman has been sexually abused as a child or as a young woman, oftentimes it is by or, or as an adolescent, it is by someone known to that known known to her. And there's a sort of creepy dynamic, of not sort of a very creepy dynamic that comes from the molester or rapist himself, which is or herself, which is um, this is going to be our little secret, you're special, and I'm going to treat you in a special way, but you can't tell anyone. And so this is a very um, uh, a dysfunctional view and early exposure to to sex for a young child, and it's very, very difficult to kind of, because it's so secret, and because it's so, um, because it's, it's it's been a secret and something to, to clearly be ashamed of, um, the woman carries that that kind of that kind of thinking goes along with her into adolescence and and adulthood if it's not addressed immediately and in aa itself where after all people don't have power um a young woman this is typically what happens a young woman goes to aa seeking help from the the the, the nice people there to help her at alcoholics anonymous an older man, and let's just use this for you know for this case as a, a, a heterosexual encounter, but it can be anything. But in this case, let's just say that it's an, an older man or an old timer man at AA and with a young woman. He goes up to her. AA suggests that you find male sponsors if you're a, a man and female sponsors if you're a heterosexual woman. And uh, there, that's in a, a pamphlet that I saw. But there's no, you know, we know that there are, I mean, AA doesn't have rules and certainly doesn't have a way of enforcing them. So this guy will come up to a woman and say, uh, hey, Jenny, um, are you new here? Yes, I am. So I'm really nervous. I'm you know, new to sobriety. I'm really trying to make it stick this time. And the next thing you know, they're going out for coffee, and he, he it kind of turns into a sexual relationship because in many cases, these guys tell these women, well, I'm an old-timer, and let me tell you, um, 
I can help you with your sobriety, and sex will help you with your sobriety. And they buy it because Mm -hmm. this very, very um, broken dynamic is already in their history. And there seems to be, um, you know, from what we know about sexual predators and sociopaths, there seem to be, um, they seem to be on the lookout for the especially vulnerable. And I ran into this time and time and time again. I certainly found it in the stories that my friend and colleague Monica Richardson shared with me. Um, she's making a documentary about 13 mm-hmm. stepping in AA. I certainly found it among the people who um, uh, uh, told me their stories. And it's certainly in the Alcoholics Anonymous literature itself that Bill Wilson had a terrible philandering problem. People looked the other way, and they didn't, you know, dare try to stop him, although even in his biographies, some of his his early co-members set up something that they called Founder's Watch to try and and keep an eye on him so that he wouldn't go across young women and, and, you know, devastate them, which happened numerous, numerous, numerous times. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but uh, he left 10% of the royalties to the big book to one of his mistresses. Yes, and wasn't there a lawsuit? I don't know about the lawsuit. There could have been. I didn't hear about yeah, that part. Somebody, so I hadn't heard about that either, but I was uh, talking to a, a, another, I was, you know, on another interview today, and the interviewer actually mentioned that, you know, oh, yeah, there was a big lawsuit So uh, from, you know, getting the royalties of the big book. So, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and there are, well, there are exceptional groups, but there's a, there's a problem when you make people say, when you tell people that you're going to die unless you do the first step, and the first five words are, we admitted we were powerless. Right. That is a horrible thing to say over and over and over and over again. To right. say we admitted we were powerless, pretty soon you are ready to be manipulated by anyone to be taken advantage of, and certainly you are never going to be able to leave your AA group if you believe that you are powerless. And you will die. And you will die. will die. Right, right. And what's what's more, women are not women in the society, and that goes for anybody who's you know one off of the white male uh, uh, power structure of our of our country, um, white heterosexual male, uh, you know, certainly white and heterosexual and, and kind of the Dom Draper of, of society, it's one thing for a man to say, wow, here is a problem that the world, that I wasn't able to solve myself. This is something that... Um, if you look at that, the, the kind of foundings of AA, these guys were, you know, they, the world was their oyster. It was all, it was all for them, and it was. You can look at it and say, okay, it's kind of a, a cultural, clinical milestone for them to admit. All right, this is something that I didn't have power over. But for anybody outside that power structure, anybody outside the, any person of color, any person who's a, a homosexual. And, and, and certainly women, they're not coming to the table 
totally powerful. They're not coming to the table, you know, in charge of their lives in society as much as the founders of AA certainly were. And so the whole idea of powerlessness, the logic is completely off for mm-hmm. most people. I question personally if it's if it's good for anyone. And here we're back to pop culture again because pop culture says I've heard this over and over again on TV shows. The first step is admitting you have a problem. Well, that's exactly. not the first. That's not the first step of AA. The first step of AA is admitting you are powerless. You need to be rescued by some outside power. And if you question God, does I don't know if God exists? Make us make AA your higher power. Now, an organization that claims to be God to me that's a scary organization. Well, I heard some even scarier things um, among the women, many of the women I talked to. I said, well, how do you deal with the the, the whole higher power thing? If you yourself say that you're kind of, you know, the jury's out for you about about God or, you know, about religion in general, how, how do you square this? And one woman looked at me, smiled, and just said, oh, I make Brad Pitt my higher power. And I just thought, man, that is really almost hard to even hear, that you make your higher power an actor who you, you know, who you, who you lust after. That's really, that's really um, perplexing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the whole purpose of the powerlessness higher power thing is to keep people uh, is my opinion is to keep them trapped in the group because my whole approach and a lot of people's approach, people have strengths inside themselves that are not developed. What you do is develop their inner strengths and make them stronger so that they are able to deal with the problem. Absolutely. And I here's here's one thing people say to me, well, you know, if you when you recognize you had a problem, what did you do? Well, I realized that I was drinking earlier in the evening than I had been. I was, you know, used to typically I'd pour myself a glass of wine and then maybe a second at about 7.30. And I had quit my job. I was moving across the country. I was selling a house. I had three kids to move. I was saying goodbye to my parents. I was, you know, saying goodbye to my parents-in-law. And it was it was a really tough move. And I after I quit my job, I had all this time in the day. And I was trying to sell my house, and people were coming and looking at my house and, you know, criticizing my house. And it just was kind of the last straw of a lot of things that were that were really difficult to kind of muscle through. And since I wasn't working, I thought, oh, well, it's 5 o'clock. I can have a drink. And a couple of weeks later, after, you know, drinking probably three glasses a night, you know, most of a bottle of wine. I didn't ever really finish a bottle, but because that for me was somehow sort of scary limit, scary threshold. And... I realized I I was walking the dog and I had to be out of my house and I realized, ugh, it's almost five o'clock. This is gonna, you know, I'm, I I can't wait to go back and have my drink. And I realized how ridiculous that was for me at that moment. That it wasn't gonna solve anything. It was gonna render me. It was gonna be another two and a half hours of of kind of sipping from a bottle of wine. I wasn't going to be more functional. I wasn't going to be more lucid. I certainly, and it certainly wasn't going to change any of the factors of what I was facing. And 
so I stopped and for about a month. I don't know what gave me that idea, but something I'd read probably somewhere. If you can stop for a month, you're fine. And and then I realized this is and this is such perfect harm reduction. I think you and I have talked about this before. Mm-hmm. After I started drinking again, my own harm reduction was don't be an idiot. Don't I mean for me, myself, I don't care what other people do, but for me myself, don't drink at five o'clock. If you have the ability to drink at five o'clock, it doesn't mean you have to. If you've had a really stressful day, go for a walk, go to a movie. Go take the dog for a walk. Go go on a bike ride. Go, you know, change 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 it up. Don't go to the refrigerator until much later. Doesn't mean you can't ever go to the refrigerator. It's just simply don't start doing that at a point where it might start causing you harm. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I had that conversation and you said that's your own recipe for harm reduction. And so that's it. Oh, absolutely. That's it. I practice my own recipe for harm reduction. I don't drink before 7.30. So, um, yeah, and you mentioned another thing, you know, go to a movie, and, and a lot of therapists I have spoken to, a lot of practitioners who who help women with their alcohol problems, say, go to a yoga class, go join the Audubon Society, go find birds in your neck of the woods that are out at your witching hour. And to me, it makes perfect sense, and it doesn't have anything to do with going to a meeting and surrounding yourself again and again and again and again and again with more alcohol talk. It's the opposite. It's changing it up. Mm-hmm. One thing I really like now that I've uh, found out about uh, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh-huh. uh, they adapt some things from Zen Buddhism, and they say, well, one thing you can do if you tempted to drink, because they do address uh, substance use in DBT, and they say, you can sweep the floor mindfully with your total attention put on sweeping the floor, or you can make tea, and you put your total attention on making the tea. And these activities that you do mindfully with your full attention on them are a great way if you're feeling like drinking. And, you know, this is a great way to totally reorient your mind. Exactly. Exactly. And I happen to love birds. I live in in New Jersey and uh, kind of in the, you know, there are a lot of woods around. And one thing that I think I have become ever more mindful of I've always loved birds, but I've become ever more mindful in as I've researched this book, uh, as I've done research for this book, about my relationship with these little birds who come. And it, I'm really, I guess you could say in a strange way, that's harm reduction too. I mean, or part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just, maybe it's just an interest, but... Um, I'm really not tempted to drink. It's kind of at this much it's at this at this rate it's not a pattern for me to start to reach for a drink at seven at at, at five o'clock. But I do spend those evening hours, especially this time of year, in my office looking out at those beautiful birds and it just it just brings me such incredible joy. I just you know, I know them, I know their families, I I'm going to sound like a crazy bird lady, so I should probably, probably <laughs> stop talking about this. No, it doesn't matter. Harm reduction, uh, you know, initially it was just about preventing harm. You know, it started with handing out clean needles so people didn't pass right. around infections. But, you know, it's grown, and now it's more like not just in, not just decreasing harm, but increasing quality of life. And anything you do that increases your quality of life also comes under the rubric of harm reduction. 
Yeah, that's that that actually is a is a wonderful it's a wonderful description. So, and interestingly, I have a question for you. How mm-hmm. do you um how do you when when I'll mention harm reduction to people? I mentioned harm reduction to another reporter I know, and I said she said, "Well, what works?" And I said, "Well, you know, in Europe and in many places around the world, harm reduction is the first line of, that's one of the first treatment options or, or approaches. Oh, harm reduction. What is that? That's just, you know, having somebody, you know, it's like telling somebody to go drink a fifth of, of, of vodka in their room alone. That's not helping anybody. And I said, well, actually... It's not hurting anybody, so that's one form of harm reduction. You're not hurting anybody else. And how do you get over the stigma attached to the the, the name that mm-hmm. harm reduction mm-hmm. has? What what do you tell people? I tell people that we we use harm reduction in every aspect of our lives. When it comes to driving an automobile, you have a couple of choices. You could choose to abstain from driving. If no one ever drove an automobile, there would be no more automobile accident. This right. Is the, this is the abstinence-only approach to automobile driving. Right. Exactly. 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 Yeah. It's, it's not too practical, so people use seatbelts. They have airbags installed. These are all harm reduction devices because driving an automobile is a high-risk behavior. So you need something to reduce the harm. You need a harm reduction strategy like a seatbelt. Exactly. And speed limits. Speed limits, safer roads, traffic lights. Right. I mean, you should say, well, if everybody drove properly, you wouldn't need traffic lights. You know, they would Exactly, just... exactly. Everything we do in our life has harm reduction. Motorcycle helmets, bicycle helmets, um, you know, putting salt on your steps when they're covered with ice. Exactly. These are all harm reduction. It's kind right, of exactly. everywhere you are in life. But if you get this guy who's shooting drugs and says, I can't stop, and you say, well, you should just stop because we're not going to give you clean needles because we don't care if you die and get infected and spread infection right. to everybody else. You have to stop or else die. Those are your choices. Right, right, right. It, it's because we hate... Well, it's a, that's a very wise way of, 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 of kind of... Um, pointing that out to people, that everything you do, you know, you're right, everything you do uh, is, whether it's uh, putting gloves on when you're pulling out poison ivy, that's Mm -hmm. harm reduction. You wouldn't tell anybody not to do that. Absolutely. (laughs) You wouldn't tell anybody to put on bug spray, not to put on bug spray in in, uh, uh, the Northeast in the summertime. You wouldn't tell somebody to go for a walk and not look for ticks afterwards. It's all harm. You're right. You're absolutely right. So. It's, com- it's common sense everywhere in life, but you know, there's such stigma attached to drug use or right. excessive drinking, and there's there's such an attitude of hatred for people who do this that you know you need to either stop or die. Those are the your those are what we want to those see are your happen. Those are right, right, mm-hmm. right, right. And um, you know what, what is really interesting, and I know this uh, you didn't ask this question, but. What's really interesting to me is our very peculiar historical relationship with alcohol, and you can throw drugs in in that as well. Um, you know, initially the founding fathers, the you know colonial people were blotto. There wasn't any safe anything else that was safe to drink. Mm-hmm. Alcohol had was antimicrobial, and it both hydrated and in some cases was used for calories. And everybody drank. 
everybody drank. Even the Puritans drank. They didn't mm-hmm. they didn't endorse excessive drunkenness, but even they drank. They drank rum before they went to church. I'm not kidding about that. I mean they mm-hmm. literally we have this idea, oh we're very puritanical. The Puritans didn't have any anything better to drink. They drank rum and hard cider and beer just like everybody else. They just didn't get excessively drunk. And there are records in Massachusetts at uh, in the 18th century that they went to taverns before they went to church, filled up on rum, and went next door for a four-hour sermon. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when the Great Revival came through, the the development of, of the newer line Protestant churches, which gathered people um, under tents and, and really were far more accessible than the kind of um, uh, didactic reading of the, of the uh, not didactic, but kind of colder readings of the Puritan religions that were not Ter- they didn't seem terribly accessible to people, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. as they moved out on the frontier. And these great revivals that helped spread the uh, uh, Baptist church and the... Um, oh, I'm blanking, but there are so many others. Um, oh, yeah, the evangelical churches. Yeah, the evangelical churches. Thank you. Um, they believed that Alcohol was a great demon in society. Slavery was a great demon in society. And education of women was very important. And women didn't really have a role as the nation was industrializing. And the Victorian mores of the period, and and some that were a little earlier, said that women needed to be the guardians of uh, uh, the nation's morals. And that we needed, women needed to to really kind of gather to police... um, the morality of our society. If men were working, and women, once once colonial society had passed, women were an integral part, economic part of of the colonial society. But once once that era had passed and given way to industrialization, women didn't have as big of a role economically. So the new role that they kind of uh, subsumed and stepped into was that of of of, of ethics. And drinking was a part of that. It coincided, and this is also very unusual. Nobody really points this out. The Temperance Union coincided with the, and the Temperance Union began in Ohio and elsewhere in the Midwest, but it coincided with sand filtration, which made water safe to drink. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the country was absorbing all these immigrants who, for whom alcohol was an integral part of their lives. The Germans had their beer. Um, you're from Wisconsin, certainly you know that. Oh, yeah. Um, the Germans had their beer, had their their um, beer gardens, and whole families went to the beer gardens on Sunday. The families drank, um, Italians and Jews and, and, and Greeks were drinking wine at the table. Their children were allowed to drink. They drank as part of religious... Catholics are drinking as part of a religious ceremony. And this really rubbed the, the 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 temperance leaders the wrong way. They were white, they were Anglo-Saxon, they were Protestant. And the way to get rid of alcohol was the way to change the, the country and make sure it was appropriate for the second coming of, 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 of the Messiah was to abolish alcohol. And we really, since that time, 
have gone through a really peculiar love-hate relationship without a lot of room in between. And so it's no surprise that the main ingredient, main remedy we have for excessive drinking in this country is, you know, an all-or-nothing approach. Mm-hmm. When in fact we, I mean, our our whole relationship with our whole view of alcohol is one of of either you know kind of do or die. It's it's not very nuanced, mm-hmm. and I think it's time for us to start looking at other countries and certainly at our own selves and saying, oh, okay, well, right, well, there's a little more room for a different way of looking at it. Exactly. I want to mention one more point before we close because I got to let you go pretty soon. Um, and because uh, we talked about sexual predators in AA, and we mentioned our mutual friend uh, Monica Richardson, and you know Monica has tried to appeal to the AA General Service Office, the headquarters, right. and to say, you know, these there are some meetings that are pretty safe. There are other meetings that are just rife with sexual predators. There are some like the Midtown meeting that people can go Google that one, and you right. Know, right, there was horrible sexual abuse. But, you know, when Monica went to the general service office and said, you know, you need to do something to make sure these meetings are safe. And they said, oh, we don't have the power. It's the inverted triangle. The meetings have oh, the right, power. We right. Oh, and they said that to me too. Right, of course, yeah. We can't do anything. There's nothing that we can do to discipline any AA meeting. And yet it's totally false because if I am running an AA meeting and I start saying, uh, let's talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's talk about rational recovery in this meeting. Um, well, we don't want to do the first step anymore because people aren't powerless. Do you know how quickly my meeting will be unlisted, removed from the meeting list of the, the AA intergroups immediately? Right. You will right. be kicked off if you speak heresy, if you violate right. the dogmas. But right. sex, sexual predation is totally accepted. Uh, you know, the general service office could say, you know, we're going to delist you. We're going to take you off the meeting list if right. you, if your meeting is full of sexual predators. They don't do it. They're not no, interested they don't in do it. That. No, they're not doing it because it hasn't, you know, even as recently as last week, I asked them about it and they said it has not come up again in general service. It has not come again, uh, come up again in the meetings. It has not come again, come up again to the board. Not once. So, you know what, I just, I, you're either a microcosm of society or you are a special place for the vulnerable reaching out your hand to other alcoholics. So which is it? Um, you're reaching out for, to the vulnerable or you're a, a, a microcosm of society? And if that's the case, you better choose which one. I mean, in my opinion, I think people ought to be aware of, of, of what can ensue. In, 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 in these places. So um, I'm going to have to jump off, unfortunately. So, Yeah, I know you've got to go. It's been great talking to you. So thank you very much for being our guest this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. And everybody come back next week. We're going to do another show. So good night, everyone.